Jon Snow was a slight man from York, England. He was a doctor and a scientist, and despite coming from a working-class family, he became a leader in the advancement of modern medicine in England. He studied several different medical disciplines in London, and eventually became a member of both the Royal College of Surgeons and the Worshipful Society of Apothecaries. He was a well-regarded epidemiologist who helped discover the source of the 1854 outbreak of cholera in London, and he was an accomplished obstetrician who helped deliver Queen Victoria's eighth and ninth children, Leopold and Beatrice. Each of these accomplishments would be the singular highlight of a person's career, and would likely describe a particularly loved and revered figure in their day, but not Snow. For all of his successes in medicine and science, Snow was not particularly successful in a social sense. One of his closest friends and colleagues, Dr. Benjamin Ward Richardson, describes Snow as being a nervous individual with narrow set eyes and a fox-like face. He was known more for his substance than his flair. According to Richardson, Snow rarely made a good first impression or a second impression for that matter. But Snow did possess one particular quality that would end up setting him apart from his peers. He was always kept in the foreground by his indomitable perseverance and determination and following up whatever line of investigation was open to him. And many lines of investigation were open to Snow, not the least of which was the practice of anesthesiology. Introducing Nasal High Flow Therapy from Massimo. Soft flow provides warmed and humidified respiratory gases at high flow rates through a soft nasal cannula to spontaneously breathing patients suffering from respiratory distress and other pulmonary conditions. Visit Massimo.com slash soft flow to learn more. Snow's line of investigation into anesthesia began on Monday, December 28th, 1846. By that day, the news of Morton's Ether Day presentation had been carried across the Atlantic to London, where yet another dentist, a man by the name of James Robinson, had taken it upon himself to introduce ether to the old world. Robinson was already using this new ether anesthesia in his own practice, and he was eager to show off his newfound skills. So, on a Monday evening in late December, Robinson invited Snow to attend a demonstration of ether anesthesia. Robinson was a well-known practitioner who located his dental practice at 7 Gower Street, just across from the University of London. His ether demonstrations were quickly becoming a popular event among the intrigued medical community in London, and that night was no different. Similar to Morton, Robinson used an ether device to administer the anesthesia to his patients, except that his device was a repurposed glass apparatus more commonly used for making soda water. Snow, along with several other medical colleagues, including the famed Scottish surgeon Robert Liston, gathered closely around Robinson's frigid surgery room, prepared to witness, likely for the first time, the use of ether as an anesthetic for surgery. And Robinson was determined to put on a successful performance. 
He had scheduled three separate surgeries to take place in quick succession to show how well Ether worked. The first patient was a 20-year-old man who came for a tooth extraction. Robinson seated the man in a chair. He placed a padded mouthpiece in his mouth. Open your mouth. And positioned a spring over the man's nose, forcing him to breathe through his mouth. Now breathe vigorously. The young man inhaled the vaporized ether for nearly two minutes before losing consciousness. Robinson removed the tooth. The crowd, including Snow, looked on in amazement. When the young man awoke, he was a bit surprised and extremely happy with the outcome of the surgery and the effects of the ether. The other patients ended up being far less ideal case studies for Robinson. The second patient, a young man around 18 years old, refused the anesthetic out of fear of the rumors he had heard. See, he thought Robinson would sedate him only to take out all of his teeth. And the final case involved a 13-year-old girl who agreed to inhale the ether anesthesia. She took the vapor readily in 20 respirations, becoming perfectly narcotized. Robinson was able to remove her molar. Then things took a turn. She did not recover her faculties for four minutes and then had headache and oppression. I concluded that more vapor was given than necessary. Then the girl recovered. But his exhibition of ether anesthesia sparked a critical idea in Snow's mind as he watched the events unfold from one patient to the next. He knew immediately that the primary problem with this new discovery was that it was incredibly inconsistent. Snow had a unique perspective. Many of his contemporaries believed it was merely an issue of faulty equipment. Snow felt that knowledge of the substance was the crucial missing ingredient. Just a few weeks after attending Robinson's ether demonstrations on Gower Street, Snow had tested ether numerous times on himself and then devised a guide for the use of ether called a table for calculating the strength of ether vapor, which was presented during the Westminster Society meeting on January 16, 1847. Snow then went on to invent a series of temperature-controlled ether inhalers which would allow Snow to administer the proper dose of anesthesia every time. Snow was making all of these efforts because he came to realize something fundamental about this new practice of anesthesia. Something that no other medical professionals of his day seemed ready to accept. Or, at the very least, they were not ready to let it interrupt their enthusiasm over the discovery of ether and eventually chloroform. See, Snow was able to discern almost immediately that despite the medical wonder that was anesthesia, it had another, far more troubling side. It was also a killer. The young girl at Robinson's demonstration remained sedated for four long minutes. And what followed was not painlessness, but pain. It was an experience that would in some way foreshadow the tragedy of Hannah Greener over a year later and it moved Snow to study the ins and outs of anesthesia. He was determined to understand how to harness this new medical tool. And the eventual discovery of chloroform by Simpson the following fall 
would further enthrall Snow along with the rest of the medical community of England. Yet Snow remained suspicious of the haphazard implementation of these anesthetic agents by his peers, such as Simpson's teaspoon of chlory on a hanky. I look on the results as only what was to be apprehended from the over-rapid action of chloroform when administered on a handkerchief, and consider that danger may be avoided by adopting another method. So he continued to standardize his own practice with chloroform. His inhaler always used water that was maintained at exactly 55 degrees Fahrenheit to ensure a predictable dose would be delivered to the patient. And his attention to detail and dedication to meticulous experimentation gave Snow confidence that these agents could be used widely without fear of patient death. The conditions of the patient which influenced the action of chloroform, that I know of no state of the patient with respect to age, constitution, or disease, which positively contraindicates the use of it. Snow believed that ether, and especially chloroform, when used properly by an experienced practitioner, would safely anesthetize anyone, and indeed that everyone deserved the benefit of experiencing surgery without the need for pain. Introducing Nasal High Flow Therapy from Massimo. Soft flow provides warmed and humidified respiratory gases at high flow rates through a soft nasal cannula to spontaneously breathing patients suffering from respiratory distress and other pulmonary conditions. Visit Massimo.com slash soft flow to learn more. Welcome to episode three of this season of Anesthesiology News Presents The Etherist. The discovery of anesthesia, whether it was ether or chloroform, was surprisingly fast-paced and full of unexpected turns, amazing scientific insights, and incredible tragedies. Snow was a unique figure in this story. He was unexpectedly well-positioned for his time to delve deep into the science underlying the use of chloroform and ether. And he was astute enough to question the enthusiasm and consensus of these brand new anesthetic agents. In the previous episodes, we relive the incredible achievements of the discoverers of anesthesia in Davy, Morton, Simpson, and Long. But Snow's contributions to the field of anesthesiology might be just as important for the future of the specialty and patient care. And it was Snow's forward-thinking mentality that became the spirit of the profession the idea that there is always a better answer to the problem than the one that we have now. This push for progress, not just for the sake of progress, but for the sake of the patient lying on the OR table. So in this episode, like Snow, we'll turn our attention to our own future. How does the story of ether, chloroform, and the world's first anesthesia practice standards guide our own journey into the future of the specialty? I'm your host, Michael DePoe Wilson, and this is Anesthesiology News Presents The Etherist, Season 3, Episode 3, The First Professional Anesthetist, sponsored by Massimo and Medtronic. (music) 
When many of Snow's contemporaries heard about the potential of ether anesthesia, they quickly obtained some for themselves, eager to have the new cure for surgical pain for their patients. This is exactly where Snow separated himself from the other anesthetists of his time. John Snow was a true physician scientist at the time. You know, he came up through the ranks, was first an apprentice doctor. Then he went the conventional way, which is to uh, go to a London medical school. And then he trained himself as a scientist. This is Dr. Baron Metzigen. He'd been investigating ether um, as, as, as a bronchodilator more than anything else. And so he knew about volatile anesthetics. And uh, then, of course, he started investigating chloroform as well. But he investigated many, many, many other volatile agents. Most of them were very toxic. And the way he would investigate that, he built up his own laboratory, a menagerie of animals, um, and, and he would test the, the, uh, you know, these chemicals on them. But he'd test them on himself first. And uh, some of these were extremely uh, toxic and probably one of the reasons he died young. He basically worked himself to death, that man. And he described then, as a true scientist, uh, described uh, chloroform use both clinically and academically, physiologically. He developed a huge number of different types of devices to more accurately concentrate uh, the anesthetic and more reliably concentrate the anesthetic delivery, which is a key part of all the apparatus that developed. But there were really only two chemicals that came out of this, and that was chloroform and ether. Despite the shocking events of the case of Hannah Greener, Snow came to prefer chloroform over ether. Snow was aware that chloroform was much deadlier, but he wasn't deterred by the deaths due to the use of chloroform, because he believed the fault was in the practice of anesthesia, or lack thereof, not the agent itself. John Snow set out to try and figure out what the problem was, and although he knew that ether was safer than chloroform, he attached his reputation to chloroform and wrote two books on chloroform and how it should be administered and documented uh, copiously the records of multitudes of patients who died under chloroform as a result of this effect that I just described. Snow was a prolific researcher who frequently had his medical writing published. In fact, just months after Greener's death, Snow was invited to write a regular column in the London Medical Gazette, and it focused on his research and clinical insights into the use of anesthesia. Snow put his full reputation into the practice of chloroform anesthesia because he was convinced by the science that it was a better anesthetic choice. But he had to prove to the world, both physicians and patients, that it was worth trusting regardless of the dangers. And he aimed to do just that. He studied that very methodically. He, he was a brilliant, curious person. This is Dr. Catherine McGoldrick again. He brought science, um, as best science could be done in those days. We often say he was the first professional anesthetist um, be, because he, um, he was very interested in vapor pressures and, and properties of substances. And Snow was not just a dedicated investigator who set his laser focus on the newest and most exciting medical innovation of his time. He was also a skilled practitioner. In fact, throughout his career as an anesthetist, Snow conducted roughly 4,500 surgical cases with the use of the dreadful chloroform anesthesia. And in that time, he lost just one patient. 
Standardization was the goal in the early days of anesthesia practice. Snow led the field in developing the first guidelines for using anesthesia because, in the absence of an understanding of the actual mechanism of these drugs, it was necessary to find an effective way of using them through empirical means. But Snow and his peers were not completely in the dark in their understanding of these anesthetic agents either. It's interesting because some of the early anesthetists like uh, John Snow recognized the toxicity and the ability of these drugs to, to harm. This is Dr. Beverly Orser again. So, you know, even when these drugs were first used, it was clear that there were stages of onset of the anesthetic state. So that when you observed various um, physiologic signs like pupil size and lacrimation or excitability and then depression, respiratory patterns, heart rate patterns. It was very clear that there was a stereotypic pattern to certain drugs. Their insights were impressive for the time, but we are living far beyond the future that Jon Snow was trying to build. Would they imagine what working, walking into a modern operating room now looks like with the uh, monitoring systems, um, the ability to manipulate the airway so that it's patent and safe? The, the cardiovascular stability we can gain through pharmacological means and otherwise, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to wrap their head around it. I think they'd be thrilled, but we need to think even that much further. Dr. Orser brings up an interesting point about the ability to envision the future of medicine. Snow was trying to pull the field of medicine forward in his time, and he did just that in some critical areas like epidemiology and anesthesiology. Of course, he was one of the first of many hundreds of anesthesiologists who helped improve the specialty and made this future a reality. And now researchers, including Dr. Orser, are envisioning a new future of anesthesia care, and one that they are hoping to make a reality as well. There are stages as we um, move towards the deep anesthetic state, which is required for surgery. Um, and that we envision as being um, linked to the uh, interaction of the receptors with different receptor populations in the brain, binding to or associating with these proteins, disrupting the network behaviors, and then further disrupting the coordinated um, rhythms and patterns of activity in the brain, which allow us to perceive, um, sense, and, and respond. And so there is a disruption of those synchronized patterns uh, such that the brain no longer works in, a, in, in the same functional state. And there's some you know, really interesting research underway now <clears throat> in terms of exactly what is the basis for that disruption? What, how, how do normal rhythms change? Uh, how does the coordinated activity between various brain regions that normally associate to achieve a certain um, behavior or perception, how is that disrupted? Uh, but we know that it is, which allows tolerance to surgery. But how does finding the answer to those questions translate to a new future in the practice of anesthesia? For Snow, he found a way to deliver measured and consistent doses of chloroform, and it was groundbreaking. For us, researchers are learning how receptors in the brain interact with drugs based on the chemical and biological makeup of a unique patient, and it is leading them closer to finding even more tailored and precise anesthetic agents to target the exact effect that the anesthesia provider is seeking.
If we can understand the target receptors, we can start to think about drug discovery. And so hopefully future generations of anesthesiologists will have at their disposal drugs that are more tailored and safe. You can appreciate that anesthesia is a drug-induced coma. And the reason you need to be highly experienced and well-trained is because um, they can lead to death, right? So they can completely depress the, the normal physiologic functions of the central nervous system. And we want safer drugs that don't do that, that have a much wider safety range than what we have available. This is not an abstract concept, though. The discovery of new GABA-A receptors that Dr. Orser described in Episode 2 was a discovery made nearly 20 years ago that unlocked a whole new line of investigation into anesthetics and brain function. And all of these years later, that discovery is starting to reveal new opportunities for the advancement of anesthesia care in the very near future. But we've followed that line of inquiry. That was the launch to studying the properties of this memory blocking receptor. Okay, it's cool, it's unique. How does it play a role in memory? And we've since learned that it's that receptor that's overexpressed after exposure. And that got us into thinking, okay, do we have drugs that are selective to inhibit? Yes, they do. And they can prevent that persistent memory deficit. Are they clinically applicable? That's the pursuit we're, we're undertaking now. Can we move from the lab to um, um, trying these drugs as a cognitive enhancing strategy after anesthesia and surgery? Early days still, we're looking for companies that are are ready to launch, but that we have that line of inquiry underway. We've also in the lab been developing a new strategy using um, a peptide, and, and this, this technology is patented now by the university, a new way to prevent that overexpression using um, not going after inhibiting the receptor itself, but preventing it from getting up to the surface of the cells. And so we've got another line of inquiry trying to figure out if, if there may be utility in that approach in terms of preserving memory after exposure to these drugs. It has been 175 years since the first ether anesthesia demonstration introduced the medical community to the potential of these drugs. And we have made incredible advances from snow standardization practices to our modern day anesthesia monitors and more. And now the focus is on making improvements that would have never been thought possible to Snow and his contemporaries. Right. So we, we developed the technologies to titrate, right? So, so and, and Snow was one of the first ones to develop these vaporizers that had, uh, that offered the ability to more carefully select dose, dose of drug. But we've, we've got now technologies to administer doses uh, that are um, graded and safer so we can respond to differences in patient needs. Um, so uh, that, that's, that's an advance too. Not only we've got better drugs, we've learned to use them better and we've developed the technologies to use them in a more a safer manner. Snow left behind a legacy of progress and improvement. He was never content with the idea that something just worked. He needed to know why and how. And once he had his answer, he would make sure that he got the word out far and wide so his fellow anesthetists and their patients would benefit from it. And there is probably no better example of that than Snow's description of the five degrees of narcotism, which first appeared in his book, on the Inhalation of Vapor of Ether in Surgical Operations, published in September of 1847. 
These five degrees were intended to highlight the stages of sedation for his fellow anesthetists, to help them find the balance between avoiding pain and awareness during surgery and death. According to Snow, in the first degree of etherization, the patient is conscious, cooperative, might feel exhilaration, and is ultimately able to feel pain. In the second degree, the patient can perform voluntary actions, even sobbing or screaming. He advised the anesthetist to encourage the patients to breathe in more of the vapor to advance to the next degree. In the third degree, the patient is unconscious, not capable of voluntary action, and may occasionally slide off the operating chair. In this degree, the patient may hold their breath or even groan and flinch, he advised. In the fourth degree, the patient is limp, unconscious, and has no reaction to pain with a quickened pulse and Snow was adamant that the patient should not be kept in the fourth degree for longer than five minutes, or it would lead to the fifth degree, when the patient's breathing would become labored and quickly progress to apnea, followed by cardiac arrest. Snow noted in his writing that reaching the fifth degree was a point of no return. Snow wrote at the time that he had only observed this last degree during animal experiments, but his research proved to him that it was a distinct degree and one that all anesthetists should be aware of. In part, Snow's scientific contributions to the development of anesthesiology helped the practice of sedating patients become widely accepted. Like Snow, many physicians believed that anesthesia use should become a universal practice. But there were still uncertainties around the use of both ether and chloroform, and the latter was especially fraught in the eyes of patients and physicians. In fact, Snow was frequently asked to explain his thoughts on the two anesthetic agents, especially his reasoning behind insisting on continuing to use chloroform. On one Saturday night, at the Westminster Royal Society meeting, Snow was directly confronted about just this. Tell us, Jon Snow, which is really the safer anesthetic, ether or chloroform? Ether. Well then, why do you not use ether? I use chloroform for the same reason you use phosphorus matches instead of the tinderbox. An occasional risk never stands in the way of ready applicability. Snow seemed to understand the true potential of anesthetic agents was not merely in the power of the substance to remove consciousness and pain. The true potential of anesthesia was in the skill and knowledge of the anesthetist who was using it. Thank you for listening, and if you are enjoying the season of The Etherist so far, please subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. And if you really like what you're hearing, please share us with your colleagues too. We would really appreciate it. This season of The Etherist was created by me, Michael DePoe Wilson, along with James Pruden, our editorial director. It was edited by Ken Christensen. Music comes from Blue Dot Studios. The rest of our team includes Richard Tordo, Justin Kabak, Blake Dennis, Kwangi Chung, Sophia Lee, Betty Zong, Kristen Janikone, Sam Steinfeld, 
and Lucia Scanlon, who all contributed greatly to the making of the Aetherist. And a special thanks to our sponsors, Massimo and Medtronic. Thanks for listening.